Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Why are you in Jinko jeans, Gavin? We're doing the 80s today, not the 90s. Ass. The following podcast contains... Ah! What the f*** did you do that for? Hey! That was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you looked at the guy who made movies with the monkey and said, Oh, he's got my vote. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is a Friday, March 27th, 2020. We're still preoccupied with 1985 Part 1, the whitest decade ever edition of the show, where we try to take your mind off 2020 and go back to where it all began, the 1980s. It's going to be bodacious and trippendicular. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by The Gipper. If you've ever wondered what went wrong with America, we have the answer. From his lackluster acting career to his time rooting out the commies in Hollywood, through his going for Goldwater, his time as governor of California, and two terms as president of the United States, pretty much everything that is wrong with America can be traced back to The Gipper. When he said, But I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. He put us on the path that has made life so much better for the billionaires of America, but not so much for you. So when you're looking at the shining gated community on the hill that you will never be allowed in, always remember The Gipper. last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. You might be curious as to why, during the middle of what has to be the most cataclysmic moment in our history since 9-11, arguably since the Civil War, a podcast about the 1980s is dropping into your feeds. Have you met me? You might even think old Dave has lost it and is huddling inside his nostalgia to avoid thinking about how awful things are now. And you'll be correct. But I have a bigger idea than just trotting through my toy collection and archive of archaic television shows. I want to distract you from all the shitty news, and I wanted to draw a direct line between the decade of the 1980s and 2020 to explain why uh, things are uh, like they are. 
So uh, strap in for a two-parter stroll through history. And if you look under your seat, you will find a package containing a pair of parachute pants and a members-only jacket that you will need to don before we continue. Oh, gnarly! Before I dive into the decade that made us what we are, I need to take a minute to talk about the 70s. Talk to your children about the 70s, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, they need to know. If a country can be said to have a hangover, the 1970s were just that. After the dynamism, cultural change, and a shit ton of drugs in the 1960s, the 1970s were, uh... Picture the exact opposite of that. Words like malaise, stagnation, cultural fracturing, and political corruption all sum up the experience of the 1970s. America was floundering and clearly needed something, someone, to give us a purpose again. They found this guy. No, 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 Gavin. It wasn't George Lucas. It was a man who told America that he could make it great again, just like it used to be. Before all these uppity colored folks and shrill feminists and mincing queers came along and demanded they be treated like actual human beings, America looked for a man who could turn back the clock a couple of decades. And they found him in this guy right here. The time is now for strong leadership. Reagan for president. And at the dawn of the decade, Ronald Wilson Reagan whipped Jimmy Carter's ass in an embarrassing landslide that would only be topped by his re-election four years later in an even more embarrassing landslide against Walter Mondale. And so the 70s ended and the 1980s began. Why, Reagan? Oh, children. You can't know what it was like when he ran for office. It was like 80% of all the white people in the country simultaneously experienced multiple orgasms together and just covered the country in stringy ropes of white goo. Thanks for the visual. Reagan showed up and promised that if we voted for him, he would fix all the problems plaguing our nation, restore national pride, and whip those dirty commies once and for all, and he would do this by helping rich people get richer. Now, a lot of people, as you might imagine, had questions. That's your plan? Yes. Honest to God, that really was his plan. All Reaganomics was was just making it easier for rich people to get richer. And then because they had so much money, some of that money would make the rest of us a little richer as well. It was called, and I swear I'm not making this up, trickle-down economics. What? Shoot, I wish somebody gave me a golden shower. The idea was that if we enacted massive tax cuts and let the very, very rich take all those millions of dollars they saved and ostensibly reinvest them in business and creating jobs, why everyone would be better off ipso facto. And so, you are probably thinking... Did it work? Here's the funny thing about tax cuts. They do work for a short period of time. Reagan's tax cuts goosed the economy and started the 80s boom where everyone, for a little while, got richer. Well, <laughs> not everyone. You know, black and brown people didn't really experience much of a benefit, and since to pay for some of those tax cuts, the services that used to help them just get by in life were slashed to the bone. So in a way, if you look at it, black and brown people made it possible for white people to get rich and do a lot of cocaine in the 1980s. Thank you, black dynamite. Also... Reagan was buying a shitload of stuff for the military. 
increase in troop strength, and military pay, which, in full disclosure, took my family from the edge of poverty straight into a comfortable middle-class existence in about a year. So my speaking ill of St. Reagan is blasphemy of the second order in my family, right after my being an atheist, which and not even having the decency to be ashamed of it, which is, of course, blasphemy of the first order. All of this buying of space lasers and the money that went to my dad giving me an allowance had to be paid for somehow. And since taxes weren't going to do it, Ron bought it on credit and the national debt soared. But that would be someone else's problem and no one in the 80s gave it any kind of thought. Within a couple of years, America really did turn a corner. And by 1983, the economy was humming like a stockbroker with a nose full of blow and two strippers on his dick. I have lived through three big economic booms and <laughs> their subsequent bust in my life, but none of them compared to the sheer, we've got all going to get rich vibe of the 1980s. Everyone, except of course for the aforementioned black and brown people, just thought, fuck it. We're all going to get paid, and it showed in almost every facet of society. America became obsessed with the appearance of wealth. Our fashion, our television, movies, our music, in them, money was everywhere. And all you needed to do to get some was just, I don't know, trade some stocks on Wall Street or make a new kind of cruise missile, and that shit would just rain on you. Of course, the irony of that song, which white people heard as a pay on to wealth and excess, was that it was about a guy who was fucking broke as shit and just dreamed of having himself some money. But no one seems to notice that part of the song. All we heard was he wanted to be rich, and so did we. This was the core of the 80s. We all wanted money, lots and lots of money, and we faked it until we made it, and a lot of people never made it, but they faked it and faked it well. Maybe you were around for the dot-com bubble or the housing boom, and you think you saw the gross excess of everyday Americans in pursuit of wealth, but none of that holds a candle to the rampant consumerism and blatant worship of wealth that made the 80s the 80s. A hysteria has swept the nation that reached from the heights of the rich and famous all the way down to the regular folks on the streets. No, 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 not uh, like poor people. Oh, you see, there were no poor people in the 80s. I mean, there were totally lots of poor people. Indeed, we started adding poor people like crazy in the 80s, but they were never mentioned on the nightly news or in Time magazine, and they definitely disappeared from the entertainment media. Back in the 70s, shows like All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Chico and the Man, Good Times, One Day at a Time, and of course, Alice showed regular working class folks struggling to get by day to day. When the 80s came around, all those shows were replaced entirely by shows focused on the rich and the famous and the diabolical. Dynasty will continue. My darling Crystal, I've had this fragrance created especially for you. I think it's as beautiful as you are. Every time you wear it, remember, I love you forever. My dearest Blake, I've had this fragrance created especially for you. 
I think it's as sexy as you are. And every time you wear it, remember that I'll love you forever, too. Forever Crystal and Carrington, both created to celebrate the love that lives forever. Dallas Dynasty Falcon Crest Knots landing a slew of less successful imitators dominated the prime time airwaves, giving wealth hungry Americans a peek behind the curtain, revealing all the salacious decadence that wealth, power, and privilege could bring. The shows were utter trash, just like the characters they betrayed, but the ostentatious wealth that dripped from every scene, like the squishy vajays of the show's target demographic, the Karens of their days, upper middle class and upper upper middle class white women who one day dreamed of having their own Blake Carrington or shooting their own JR. The reason that these shows were so phenomenally successful wasn't the acting, it certainly wasn't the writing. The money, you stupid little bitch. Harshly said, but entirely true. Sitcoms were no different. The most popular sitcoms of the 80s all feature people who had money. Even Family Ties, which featured two hippie parents raising a young Reaganite Alex P. Keaton, were upper middle class. Different strokes. Rich white dude adopts young black boys and forces them to work in his sweatshop. <laughs> Who'd you tell my was? Sorry, my bad. That was my pitch for a gritty reboot of Different Strokes. The facts of life, rich boarding school kids mixed with a few charity cases to show off the wokeness of the show. Mr. Belvedere was a fucking butler, for Christ's sake. Who is a fucking butler? Silver Spoons? Come on. It's fucking right there in the title. And Webster, another little black boy adopted by a rich old white dude, which everyone was just fine with and did not find it all creepy. I did. And even the most beloved sitcom of the 80s featured a doctor and lawyer raising their kids in one of the toniest neighborhoods of Brooklyn, all the while hiding a terrible, dark secret about the father. A terrible, dark secret. The boy said to me that he wanted to be regular people, when in fact what he is is lazy people. And if the regular people find out that he's using their name. They're going to come down and kick his butt. Regular people. Regular people used in the same sentence as lazy people. That's how pernicious this philosophy was in the 80s. When America's beloved rapist dad sat there on the very first episode of his soon-to-be-hit sitcom and made working-class folks sound something only failures and fuck-ups and lazy people turned into. That's the 80s. Right there, folks. The worship of wealth, or at least the appearance of wealth, was nowhere more blatant and pathetic than what happened to music in the 1980s. And it all begins in one place, in an instant, in time, and it begins right here. Seven, six, five, four. We've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Now, just moments ago, all of the VJs and the crew here at MTV collectively hit our executive producer, Sue Steinberg, over the head with a bottle of champagne, and behold, a new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. For better or for worse, MTV would shake the world of music in America and the world 
and would shape how the 80s would influence a generation of young people for the rest of their lives because it created the age of corporate rock. Now, this part of the show needs some hedging. The first thing is, some amazing music came out in the 80s. Brilliant works by incredibly talented musicians who innovated and inspired. But for every Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, for every Cure or the Smiths or even Duran Duran, who were neither Duran nor Duran. And now I'm getting verklempt. We're all verklempt. I'm sorry. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. And that topic is for every one of those musicians there were 10 of 15 of these. Say you don't know me. I recognize my face. Say you don't care goes to that kind of place. Needed in the hoopla. Sinking in your fight. I know I should apologize for doing that, but I'm not going to. Because the other hedge is I have come to love that shitty, shitty 80s music for exactly what it is. Shitty, shitty 80s music. Objectively speaking, the 80s greed machine murdered music just like it murdered the working class, television, and the government. I took this from a website called, ironically enough, American Greatness, which is exactly what you think it is, from a 2019 article written by a dude named Eric Root. Quote, The year 1984 may have been the high point of pop and rock, but that's not saying much. The entire decade is more notable for the musical malaise it created. As a, as a music director for radio stations during the decade, I should know. It was during the 80s that radio stations began to tighten their playlists, all to the happy applause of corporate music execs. The rapid creativity of the 1970s radio stations died to be replaced by pre-planned and survey-tested radio formats. The most significant of these were song stations received from the radio syndication company Drake and Chenault. No longer were programs and music directors left to their own knowledge and gut as to what made a hit. They deferred to the experts. It was the disasters. The same songs were played and replayed to the point of monotony. Music and then radio began to lose its audience, and the music that was created for the just this purpose suffered in a significant way. It all began to sound the same. The 1980s represented a creeping destruction of musical creativity. The few shining moments in this decade were achieved by those acts allowed by their corporate producers to test the boundaries of acceptable on-air material. Michael Jackson's Thriller falls into this category. Most of the music in the 1980s, however, to put it colloquially, sucked. It is remarkable that music execs and radio gods decided to clamp down on creativity the moment they did. It was only 10 years earlier, 1974, that a small band signed with about as independent as a record label London as one could get at the time and packed Austin Stadium with their 80,000 of their closest friends. Tried doing that without a major label backing. ZZ Top did it, though, and they were immensely popular even before their hit song, Tush, 
and and they're signing with Warner Brothers. But in the 1970s, as now, the market craved something original, even if it was not audience tested and approved. It worked. When the record labels merged and clamped down on musical talent, they froze out the bands that would have carried their creative market into the next decade. Those who wanted to remain a signed act were forced into a company playlist with company producers and company songwriters. Many bands before the explosion of the internet and independent labels were sadly never to find broad fame and marketability they deserved because music executives really did not have the expertise they thought they had, unquote. Whatever other political ideas Eric Root hold, he is dead on about the music industry in the 1980s. For decades, the music industry was a live performance and radio airplay business model. The record labels, starting about 1940, began to merge and control what made it into radio, thereby controlling what became a hit and what did not. I took this from a website called Exploration.io in an article called, quote, what is a record label, unquote, and condensed it here. Consolidation occurred again on a larger scale throughout the 60s. At this point, CBS had acquired Columbia Records and American Record Corporation, along with their stock subsidiaries. Warner Brothers brought Repies and Seven Arts. Then Warner Seven Arts bought Atlantic Electra Records before being purchased and folded into the Kinsey Corporation umbrella in 69. In 67, MCA put subsidiaries Brunswick and Coral under the MCA label. They also bought DECA. By the end of the 60s, CBS was the top record label, followed by Warner Brothers, RCA, Victor, Capital, E&I, Polygram, and MCA also remained on the leaderboard of the recording industry. Warner was incredibly active in the 70s, establishing Casablanca and acquiring Sire and Asylum Records. WEA was also created, uh, created under Warner Communications through a merger of Electra and Atlantic in 1973. Polygram bought half of Casablanca from Warner, then went on to purchase RSL Records. By the end of the decade, they owned many labels, including Polydor, Mercury, Smash, MGM, and Verve. EMI Records, formed by EMI in 1972, partnered with Capitol Records in the late 70s to create EMI America. EMI purchased Liberty Records in 79, put him under the United Artists brand name. EMI was then bought by Thorne and became Thorne EMI. ABC Dunhill were bought by the MCA in the 1970s. Curb Records was established by MGM veteran Mike Curb, and Sugar Hill Records was formed as one of the first rap exclusive records in 1974. Other labels were also founded throughout the decade. By the end of the 1970s, the top major labels were CBS, EMI, Warner, Polygram, and NCA. Thing is, all of these labels were that, recording labels. And through years of manipulation, extortion, bribery, deception, theft, and out-and-out criminal behavior of pretty much every imaginable kind, they had refined and specialized the art of stealing music from musicians and selling it to us to enrich record labels. Then came MTV, which changed the ground rules. No longer was it concerts and radio airplay, it was advertising dollars on national television, and that was money even the most fucking corrupt record exec couldn't imagine. The only people corrupt enough for that kind of money were major international co- or corporations, and through that most 80s of corporate crime, mergers and acquisitions, thus we come back to Big Mike Milken from the beginning of the show, they created the modern labels. From the previous article, quote, the major acquisitions of the 1980s were General Electric's purchase of RCA Victor, sold to BMJ only a year later. Sony's purchase of Columbia, CBS's purchase of Monument, and MCS's purchase of Motown. Time, Inc. and Warner Brothers merged during the 80s to form Time Warner, Inc. Labels founded in the, de- in the 1980s included IRS Records, Boardwalk, Def Jam, Sub Pop, and Matador. By the end of the decade, the top labels were Sony, Warner, Polygram, MG, EMI, and MCA, unquote. 
By the end of the 1980s, every major music label was now under the umbrella of either a big multinational corporation or a media corporation like Time Warner. And they knew fucking shit about how to find, sign, promote, and profit from good music. What they were good at was churning out massive amounts of drivel and monocultural dreck in huge amounts and then spending tons of money to get it where people would listen to it on the radio and to see it on MTV, largely because they began buying up radio stations as well. By the mid-decade, largely thanks to MTV and corporate takeovers, Top 40 music became conformist, vanilla, and interchangeable. Admit it. Just admit it. You can't really tell the difference between Ario Speedwagon, Foreigner, Journey, and the Jay Giles Band without looking at the album cover. These are the artists that had Billboard number ones in 1985. Madonna, Foreigner, Wham, Ario Speedwagon, Phil Collins, Simple Minds, Tears for Fears, Fears, Brian Adams, Huey Lewis, Dire Straits, Starship, Mr. Mr. Mr., and Lionel Richie. A few R&B hits snuck in there for like a week or so, but those are the names that dominated the charts. And while I love these bands, and I hold Phil Collins as godlike in in my esteem, they're all pretty much the same fucking band. Their songs all sound exactly the same. Their videos look exactly the same. And we danced exactly the same. Them in the identical, unrhythmic, white people dance moves. And so here we were. A nation of vanilla-ass yuppies grooving to Huey Lewis in the news, dreaming of owning a sports car, and a big Wall Street job wearing zippered pants, shoulder pads, and absurdly large hair. The 80s were the whitest decade ever. And we should all be ashamed of ourselves. Being white people, we still worship this decade today, even me, because after all, I am so very, very, very white. Yeah, we can see that from here. But some shit was going down outside of the glaring spotlight of white peopledom. Shit that would kick over the tables of politics, finance, media, fashion, and society in general. A storm is coming. And that is where we will pick up next week for part two of We're Still Preoccupied with 1985. That is it for our show this week. We hope this little jaunt down nostalgia alley has taken your mind off all the shit going on in the world today because it has ours. Doing research for this reminds me how bad things were then. And I think that helps. If you are in need of my thoughts on the pandemic, on the pandemic, and how shitty the world is, God help you, because I don't even want them. Those thoughts are in our podcast, Extra Splendid Isolation, right here in the What the Hell feed. Rate and review, follow all the regular bullshit I say. Most important, be careful, stay safe, stay healthy. Check in on the people you love, like your local liquor store owners. Make sure that they're safe during all of this. They are there for you. You be there for them, damn it. And so for me, Dave, miniskirt made of snakeskin Bledsoe, producer, the other guy who was singing in Van Halen, Gavin, and all the fictional Springsteens and Madonnas on the show, we want to say, make this stop. Stop happening. We'll see you all next week.
I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.